All right, let's go Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2. Um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we, we also have, uh, if you're watching this from home, uh, we'll put the text up on your screen in a moment when we get to that point. Uh, you can also open up your phone, you can get your favorite Bible app out, whatever that is, uh, and uh, use that. We like the Version Bible app around here. We, we use it for all kinds of things. Um, so I missed y'all the last couple of weeks. How you been? Yeah? All right, uh, I, between having Craig here to, to, you know, he was on the calendar for a while, and I, I took the opportunity to, to go preach somewhere else uh, a couple weeks ago, and then last week, uh, I took the vacation time with the family, and I, I assigned JB a text, Psalm 38, which if you aren't familiar with Psalm 38, it's a rather difficult text to preach, uh, and I think he handled it like an absolute champ. Um, one of the things that I get to brag about uh, to other pastors, just in some insight into the nerdiness of who we are, uh, one of the things that I get to brag about to other pastors is that God has led several men here who will stand up and faithfully proclaim Scripture. All right? um, styles can vary, methods can vary as much as personalities can, but what we need here are people who will stand up and say, this is what God's Word says regardless of what it costs them. And man, I get to brag to other guys, other pastors, other people in ministry going, yeah, 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 God's brought us some good guys. And so I think JB handled it well last week. Um, but it's a new week now, so we're back in Habakkuk. You ready to get into it? All right. So um, we're on the back end now of this series. Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets. Maybe you're watching us from home and you haven't connected or engaged with this, uh, with what we've been doing before, or haven't been following along with us. Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets, and we call him a minor prophet because he writes less than the major prophets, guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, those guys. His letter is very small. It's only three chapters. You can sit down and read it in a few minutes. It doesn't take long at all, uh, but we call him one of the minor prophets. He's, he's a minor prophet specifically specifically to the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom. If you're familiar with Old Testament history at all, uh, you have the, the unified kingdom, uh, but then after Solomon dies, uh, his sons are morons, and the kingdom splits in two. You got the northern kingdom, and you have the southern kingdom, and they kind of part ways, and they have very similar histories. They have the same kind of trajectories. Ju Judah's, though, is just much slower. They both fall deeper and deeper into sin, deeper and deeper into idolatry, and God raises up prophets to speak into those nations to speak into those people to call them back to repentance. And the vast majority of the time, they don't listen to the prophets. And that's, that's kind of Habakkuk's case here. Uh, the, 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 the scenario, we think, the window that Habakkuk is writing in is this special little time period between the last great revival in the land of Judah under the reign of King Josiah, and then finally when God decimates the place, wipes them out with the nation, the empire of Babylon. All right? There's a lot of sin in the camp. There's a lot of openly practicing idolatry. It's not a pretty time at all. It's not a pretty time at all. Habakkuk watched righteousness sweep through his land. It, it touched every corner of the culture, every domain of society. He watched it all and he celebrated it. Oh God, thank you for what you're doing here. He probably begged for it for years before it finally happened. And then he got to see it, right? Like, put yourself in Habakkuk's shoes for, for just a second. He's been begging God for this for years, and then it finally comes. It finally arrives. Glory be, right? Like, like what kind of prayer life do you have on that day? As you watch revival sweep through your land. 
The problem, though, is that revival is, is incredibly short-lived. Josiah dies. The kingdom is handed off to his sons because uh, Egypt is putting vassal kings on the throne now. They wipe them out, and they run the nation of Judah into the ground. Everything falls apart, and Judah ends up being more sinful than when she started. And if you're in Habakkuk's shoes, how's your prayer life then? Like, like what are you... What are, you, what are you reading? What are you asking God for? The book of Habakkuk is this back and forth dialogue between him and God. This one's personal. There's no, thus says the Lord in Habakkuk, like we see in most of the other prophets. There's no, tell the, the people this wicked generation. This one is an intimate conversation between a prophet and his God. And Habakkuk is struggling with this stuff, right? Like, like you and I would be struggling with this stuff, trying to figure out what, what is God doing here, right? Like, what, what's going on right now? And so, and so Habakkuk cries out to God in lament, where are you? What are you doing? Why would you allow this to happen? And then God answers him. God says, I see it. And not only am I doing something about it, I've been doing something about it. In fact, I've been doing something about it for generations now. God answers him. I see it, and I'm working on it. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. You know that bitter and hasty nation, the, the Babylonians, just to your eastern border? You know those guys? That's my work. I'm raising them up. I'm making them mighty. I'm making them powerful. I'm making them ruthless, and I'm going to use them to bring my judgment on the nation of Judah. I'm going to use them to show Judah what I think about their sin. That's what he's doing. And now Habakkuk has a new layer to struggle with, right? A new layer to, to wrestle with. Because the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, man, they're, they're at least a little more sinful than the Jews are. Just a little bit, right? Thanks. I mean, if, if God's going to, if God's going to punish sin, and like I think we all kind of agree that he should, right? God should do something about the bad guys. Anybody disagree with that? God should do something about the bad guys. And if God's going to do something about the bad guys, I mean, wouldn't fairness at least dictate? I mean, I've got some little kids at the house. We, we have this conversation all the time. Wouldn't fairness dictate that he spend his time dealing with the worst sin? I mean, doesn't that seem right to you? Doesn't that seem right to me? Why would God spend his time addressing the sin of Judah when there are real, I mean, actually evil people in the world? It seems out of bounds to Habakkuk. It pricks his sensibilities. Maybe it pricks yours too. And so Habakkuk challenges God. He calls for another answer, a better answer. He stands on his watchtower and he waits, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plant myself right here. I'm going to hold my breath until you come back with a more satisfactory answer, God. And it's in this moment that I truly believe that the graciousness of God is clearly seen. Because rather than simply snuffing Habakkuk out in an instant, God instead continues to pull him along, right? 
God continues to pull him along. But while there is grace in this moment, there's not going to be a different answer. The judge has given his final verdict. No, instead, God doubles down and he vindicates his righteousness. He tells him, hey, hey, Rebecca, hey Habakkuk, um, write it down. Make it plain. I don't want anybody to mistake what I'm doing here. Write it down. This is what I'm going to do. Judah's sin, it is not compared and will not be compared to the relative sinfulness or unsinfulness of their neighbors. Judah is being compared, weighed by the infinite holy character of me. They're, they're being measured by what I am called them to do and to be. See, regardless of whatever Habakkuk wants to think about things, the cosmic king doesn't answer to him or to anybody else. He will do what is right, and Judah deserves what's coming. They deserve it. But the cosmic king is also gloriously consistent. And so while Habakkuk is wrong to try to stand as a judge over God, he is not wrong in any way, shape, or form to believe and to trust that God's not going to just sit back idly and watch Babylon's sinfulness. He's not just going to sit back and act like it's a non-issue. The Chaldeans are not a neutral player here. Habakkuk may not see any of the details yet, or especially all of the details yet. He's not big enough to to understand all the angles and, and the scope of what's going on yet. But again, as an act of graciousness, God continues to pull him along. He says, hey, listen, what I'm doing to the Babylonians or what I'm going to eventually do to the Babylonians, that is no bearing on what Jews deserves, but since you want to know so bad, let me tell you what I got planned for Babylon. Let me show you what I'm going to do. Babylon's day, it's coming. It's coming. They're, they're puffed up right now. They, they, they like to think much of themselves, but I'm getting ready to punch them back down. I've got a plan for Babylon too. But unlike Judah, They don't have my covenant faithfulness. Unlike Judah, they don't have my steadfast love. What I I do for Judah flows out of my love and my grace and my mercy towards them, but I'm about to make an example out of Babylon. I'm about to show the world what I do with a sin debt that I haven't graciously covered. And so throughout chapter 2, God is unfolding his plan for Babylon to Habakkuk. They will be devastated. They will be undone. But we also stopped short a couple weeks ago, if you remember. We shut it down at verse 17. And the reason for that is because I wanted to focus more time and attention on the last three verses of chapter 2. So look at it with me. Verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. All right, so, so God is still pronouncing his coming wrath on Babylon here, right? He hasn't, he hasn't changed subjects, but he shifts from addressing their, their puffed up uh, 
false hope, I would call it, their puffed up false hope in their military prowess and, and their strength of their army, he shifts from that to zeroing in on their false worship, right? He, he starts talking about idols here. But even as he does so, those two things aren't exactly mutually exclusive, right? That they're connected in, in Babylonian culture. Back in, in chapter 1, part of Habakkuk's anybody but those guys complaint, you remember that? Right? Habakkuk complains that they are actively making sacrifices to their dragnets and to their weapons of war. The Babylonians had a pantheon of gods during, all throughout their history, and they, they shifted all throughout that history. But the god that was in the center of their pantheon during this part of their history was a god named Marduk. Which, I mean, think about it. That, that's just got Mesopotamian God written all over it, right? Marduk. <laughs> also, if you Google it, it happens to also be the name of a Swedish black metal band. There you go. Because if you're into Swedish black metal, you need to name your band after a Babylonian deity, right? Um, Marduk was seen as a warrior. Like, who else would the Babylonians worship, right? He was a warrior god. But like all the other false religions around them, every single one of them, no matter where you go in that part of the world during that part of history, the key component of their worship was to make idols, to carve statues and reliefs and images that depicted him. No matter what the God was, no matter what the backstory was, that was the game. Carve your idol. Make a statue and worship it. Shape it, feed it, bathe it, lay it down to sleep at night like a little baby. That was seen as proper worship in that part of the world. And from Exodus on, all throughout the Old Testament, God is constantly calling the logic of that to be ridiculous. He's always pointing at that and going, what are you doing? Why would you ever put your trust in that? He's calling out the ridiculousness of that idea here. He tells Habakkuk here, what use is an idol if you've got to make it yourself? If you're in charge of shaping it, what good is that God? Get out your knife, start, start digging away at some random log you've found. Pick up a rock and grab your chisel, shape it into whatever you think looks pretty or, or mean or maybe benevolent. doesn't matter. Use all the skill available to you. But have you actually made it more godlike? Have you turned that created thing into a creator? Melt the metal down. You can even use the expensive stuff if you want to. Melt your metal down, pour it in your little your mold, your little cast. But has, has a god been born this day? In Isaiah, God calls the neighboring God scarecrows in a cucumber field. And not only is it routinely attacked throughout the Old Testament, but Paul picks up the same logic in Acts 17. He's standing in a, a big town hall kind of setting called the Arabicist in Athens. He starts pointing to all the statues and idols around him. He says, what, what, what good is a God if you have to do something for it? If your God is, is dependent on you for anything, if you, have to, if you have to feed it, if you have to bathe it, if you have to do this, if you have to do that in order for your God to, to be okay, then maybe it's not actually God. Because last time I checked, a real God wouldn't be dependent on you for anything. No, in fact, it's a teacher of lies, God tells Habakkuk. It's deception down to its core. Why? Because the worshipers of false idols 
are putting their trust and their hope in something that at the end of the day is powerless to return the favor. It can't help them. It doesn't matter how good the craftsmanship is. It doesn't matter how much effort goes into that act of worship. It doesn't matter how much faith that worshiper places in that idol. They will never, and I mean ever, be able to make that God speak. They can be the best idol carver on the planet. You can have perfect ability to craft realistic ears and mouths. But you'll never be able to make that idol hear your prayer. You'll never be able to craft a mouth that can answer you back. God tells Babylonian idolaters that their idols are worthless. But actually worse than worthless. Not merely worthless. Worse than worthless. Because look at verse 19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. The Babylonians had these grand ceremonies that would, they would try to call their God to life after they created them. They, they, would, they would stand in front of them and say, wake up, come to life. They'd slaughtered animals and triumphantly try to call things into existence. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's a, that's a nice little cultural uh, thing to know. I'm glad I know that about the Babylonians. How neat. No, what you need to notice is that that's the exact opposite of the God of the Bible. The exact opposite. The Bible's depiction of the true God shows him to be the one that calls lifeless things to life. It shows him to be the one who speaks authoritatively over his creation, who by the power of his word summons things into existence. And, and that should probably be an indicator to us of what it is the Babylonians are actually worshiping. Themselves. They may have bowed down to a statue of some named God, but they acted like gods over it. They were in control. They were the creator. They were the ones who brought life. They were the ones who dictated terms. See, at the end of the day, idolatry, no matter what form it takes, is not really about bowing down to statues. It's about using those statues or any other created thing to elevate ourselves rather than worshiping the actual creator. That's what idolatry is. Whether we're talking about Babylonians or Judah or the billions of people who bow down to physical statues today, or maybe even if we're talking about ourselves, at a core level, idolatry is rebellion. A rebellion from the reverent acknowledgement and the worship of the true creator and a vain, I would call it, elevation of ourselves as wannabe creators. It's also a problem as old as Genesis 3. You can be like God. Maybe you've never worshipped a statue. Neither have I. Not even, not even a little bit. But I have definitely been guilty of placing all of my hopes and all of my trust and all of my dreams in something I've created. Something I'm desperately trying to create. I've been guilty of giving all of my attention and all of my affections to things that are infinitely less valuable than God instead and make much of me. 
I'm guilty of that. And just between you and me, I'm, a, I'm actually a pretty good craftsman. How about you? I got a knack for, for producing some really convincing knockoffs. Quite adept at it, and stuff that other folks are usually pretty impressed with, but that I can dress things up as much as I want to, I'll never, I mean ever, be able to make that God speak. Not a chance. doesn't matter how respectable that thing might be. It doesn't matter uh, how, how respectable that thing I'm, I might be chasing after. It will never, ever, ever answer my real prayer. And God tells Habakkuk, woe to them. Woe to them. Woe to them who try to put their hope in their own creations. Normally when we hear the word woe, uh, we hear it as an angry word, right? Uh, Jesus, he, he pronounces woes on the Pharisees in Matthew 23, right? You may be familiar with that passage of scripture. scripture. There's definitely anger in his tone in that moment. There, there's anger in the word woe, but at the same time, it's not just anger. There's, there's also, it also carries the idea of pity. How pitiful are you? How sad are you that, that you would place your hope in a God of your own making? How pathetic. Oh, look at that little guy. How, how pathetic are you that you, would, that you would try to stand over a created thing and, and try to stand over it as creator yourself? There is anger in the word woe, but make no mistake about it. Woe is not pronounced here because... Because God and the gods of the Babylonians are on the same level, right? This, this is not some, some cosmic battle between two warring factions that, that each have a legitimate opportunity of coming out on top. Like, they're not contemporaries here. This, this conflict, this is the true God against those who are clinging to imaginary saviors. Figments of their own design. How sorrowful, how how pitiful are you? Woe to them. But whether they come in the form of statues or ancestors or bigger homes or respectable careers, the reality is that imaginary saviors will never be anything other than imaginary. doesn't matter how hard we work. doesn't matter how pretty we make it. Layer that thing in gold and silver if you want. Everybody will ooh and ah, but it still has no breath. They very well may look impressive to your peers, but they are powerless to actually save you. And this is why we rail so hard in here sometimes against the broader cultural Christianity that, that tries to treat faith as like some kind of key that unlocks what it is you actually treasure. You hear that all the time. It's go, go home and turn on TBN after we're done. And that's exactly the message that you're going to be fed. Believe hard enough. Uh, put your effort in this, and it will finally unlock that thing. All the, all the stuff you're hoping for will finally click into place. Sow your seed of faith, and you'll finally be on the pathway to your potential. But the reality is you don't, you don't need some statue to try to use God try to use God of your own making to get what you love. You, you don't need some statue, 
to try to manipulate the game and use a created thing to try to be the creator. We do it every day. But the Bible never describes faith as a key. It's an unadulterated trust in he who is trustworthy. And if faith is nothing more to you than some generic pathway, we could call it, some primary affection other than God, the the thing that you use, the vehicle that gets you to to the thing that you want that's not God, then then, listen, I I love you enough to tell you, just like the Babylonians, that your, your faith is misplaced. Your idol can't save you. It's worthless. The fervency of your faith is irrelevant when you place it in something that's going to fail you. Multiply any number you want by zero, you're always going to get the same results. It doesn't matter how strong the faith is. You've placed it in the wrong thing. So, So what do we do with this, right? I mean, what if we've come to this spot, whether we claim to be a Christian or we don't, right? What if we've found ourselves all of a sudden in a place where, where we realize that we've been passionately, even fervently, passionately chasing after the wrong thing? After a lifeless Savior. Because we can, we can harp on the Babylonians all we want to, but the, rea- the reality, the reason that Habakkuk is having this little dialogue with God right now is because Judah's in the same place. They're just as guilty. So if we find ourselves here, what's, what's the next step? The answer is that you set your eyes and your affections on a better Savior. Verse 20. God declares, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God tells Habakkuk, here I am. I'm right here. I'm not like those other false gods. I'm here. But not not just here. I'm better than here. Notice that the word LORD is in all caps, right? We talked about this uh, a couple of times before in the last several weeks. That's that's shorthand for, uh, uh, in a lot of English translations, for the the name Yahweh, the name that God identified for himself when he he spoke to Moses at the burning bush. Uh, Though if you you want to be completely accurate, it's it's not really Yahweh. There's no vowels in the Hebrew. So it's short for what we call the tetragrammaton. There you go. There's your 10-cent word. Uh, So uh, the four Hebrew words, yod, he, va, and he. And so we piece those together. We don't know what it actually sounds like because there's no vowels there. And like Hebrew's a dead language, ancient Hebrew at least. And so we don't know how it actually sounds, but our best guess is Yahweh. There you go. So next time you're sitting in a coffee shop and you want to sound really, really smart, Drop tetragrammaton. Just watch him try to catch up. There you go. You're welcome. All that aside, though, why why would it be important for God to to call himself by name here? Why would it be important for, for God to say, the Lord, Yahweh, is in his holy temple? Because Rather than you or me making some statue and giving it a name, the true God has a name. He desires to be known. 
He desires to be known. He's excited to let you know it. He's not hiding himself. He's made himself available. He's made himself knowable. He doesn't send you on some wild goose chase to try to figure out or unlock the secret of who he is. No, he comes to you. I'm here. Know me. Know me. But not only is he uh, intimately knowable, he's also, I would say, gloriously transcendent. See, while we're busy trying to create something impressive, something worthy of our worship, worthy of our affections, the true God says, now listen, I don't want you making images of me. You want to know the reason why? It's because nothing that comes from your hands could ever come close to what I am. Your, your little attempts to depict me are too small. I don't, I don't want your image because it makes less of me. I'm bigger and I'm better and I'm more beautiful than you can even comprehend, let alone try to recreate. While you're working to, while you're working your tail off to try to get your creation to hear your prayer and speak back to you, my creation, the whole earth, stands in awestruck silence before me. They shut their mouths and be still. I'm here. I'm infinitely transcendent, and through my grace, I make myself intimately known. If you're here today, whether you're physically in the room or you're, you're watching us online, if you're here today and you don't know this God, hear me clearly, he wants to know you. He wants to be known by you, make, yourself, make himself known to you. And so maybe you've been doing the religious thing, or maybe you've been doing the, the non-religious thing. Whatever it is, either way, you've come to a point this morning where you realize that you've been chasing after lesser imaginary gods, imaginary saviors. And those saviors very well may gain you something in this life. They may win you some kind of notoriety. They may, they, they may gain you some kind of clout in some form or fashion, but they will all one day stand before a holy God separated from him because of our sin. And on that day, the vanity of those imaginary saviors will be clearly seen. Clearly seen. It'll be unmistakable. And the gospel's called that you don't have to wait for that day. And neither did God. Not only does he sit on a throne deserving of perfect reverence, but he also is a God who came near. Jesus came, he put on flesh, and he dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as an innocent substitute to pay the penalty of, uh, of sin that, that is owed for you. And he was raised again to life as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And unlike those idols that we toil after, hoping someday they'll come through for us, Jesus accomplished every necessary thing and he now calls on you to respond to him in faith. To trust him and him alone for salvation. And you can do that this morning. You can, you can respond to, to Jesus. In, in several minutes, we're not there yet, but in several minutes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray and, and we're going to sing again. That's a time to put action to what he's calling you to, what God is stirring in your heart. And you, you don't need anybody else in that moment. He wants to, to deal with you, but man, I'd love to be helpful for you. I'd love to walk with you and talk to you, uh, help you figure out what that response of faith looks like. 
And so when that time comes, I'll, I'll be down front here. Uh, or maybe you're watching us online. You can write in the comments or shoot me an email, whatever it is. I'd love to help you walk through what that response of faith looks like. But what about those of us who are, who are already followers of Jesus, right? How do, how do we respond? Well, the same way we respond every week, right? By repenting of sin and leaning into God. This week, though, I, I, and I think that means we ask some critical questions of our heart and life. The kind of questions that we honestly usually try to avoid, right? Because imaginary functional saviors can creep in even while we claim to be faithfully following Jesus. They're sneaky that way. Can I help you try to articulate some questions? I think there, there are probably better questions out there, but every once in a while I'll try to give you some practical stuff. But a few probing questions that can maybe help flesh some of this stuff out in each and every one of our hearts. Uh, question number one, what consumes most of your thoughts and feelings? Like, what, what do you find yourself thinking about all day? And, and noted, we all have jobs or responsibilities that, that take up the lion's share of our attention during the day. But, uh, like, that, that's normal, all right? But, but despite the circumstances, despite whatever you got going on, what do you find yourself always racing, to wanting to, to racing back to? What do you find yourself always coming back to, to dwell on? What can't you stop thinking about and talking about? What do you always run back to? It's certainly not automatic, but it, it's not, but it, it might reveal a functional, imaginary Savior. Here's a second question. What's the one thing that can obliterate your mood in a moment? Like you're having a good day, things are going well, and then that person walks in the door. Or, or that thing is brought up online. Or maybe you see that news story about that certain group of people or that certain place on the news, right? What's the one thing that can just absolutely obliterate your mood in a second? Take you from zero to a thousand. The bitterness gets unlocked, it just gets uncorked, and everything comes flooding out of you, right? I got buttons. You got buttons? That might be a red flag for some misplaced affections. Here's the third question. What's something that you could never ever live without like ever live without For, forget about the need versus want thing that we all learned in elementary school right I'm, I'm talking about the fact that we're older now we we know more about the world what's the one thing that despite whatever god might call you to you say no 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 unless you provide this i ain't doing it might definitely certainly 100 percent yes be an idol you want one more i got one more What's the one thing that you think would fix the world? And I'm not talking about the spiritual answer that we're all smart enough to give in public. I'm talking about the real thing. What's the one thing that you think would fix the world? Whether it's slow people getting out of the left lane. That one was first because I, I own it. Maybe it's a culture-wide return to family values, right? Maybe it's, the, maybe it's your preferred political party never losing another election. Whatever, whatever it is, what, that one thing that you think would finally, if everybody actually got on board, all our problems would go away. Sometimes, 
Sometimes imaginary saviors gave, gain you something in this life. They, they actually do. Gain you lots of things even. Sometimes they are widely respected and even celebrated by everybody else in the room. But imaginary saviors will always be powerless when it actually matters. Regardless of what they may gain here, when it actually matters, they fail. We can harp on Babylon all we want to, but the entire reason Habakkuk is having this conversation with God is because Judah is just as guilty. So if you find yourself here, what do we do? What's what's the next step? The answer is that you set your eyes and your affections on a better Savior. You lift the level of your eyes beyond that temporary, insufficient thing to the God who's actually good. Actually lovely. Actually powerful. Actually king. You get yourself a better Savior. King Jesus is here. He is infinitely transcendent, and through his grace, he makes himself intimately knowable. Repent of sin this morning and press into him. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Let that be a moment that you respond to how he's leading you, but how whoever you are and whatever he's calling you to this morning, let's respond together as a church family now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for, let's be honest, difficult words in Habakkuk. I know my heart well enough to, to know that I can, that I can look at this, this call to step away from idolatry and think it's someone else's problem, someone else's struggle, someone else's failure. That's not being honest with my heart. It's my struggle. It's my failure. Even as I claim to, to follow you, these other lesser things creep in and, and I give them my allegiance and I give them my affections and I give them my hope. But they will all be found wanting. Regardless of how much effort I put into it. Would you raise the level of my eyes? you call me away from those cheap knockoffs and distractions to focus my attention squarely on you alone. I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, and, and seal it for you. Let me not be drawn away by lesser things. For those who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? God, would you open eyes to see? Would you open ears to hear? Would you open hearts to know? Would you draw people into your kingdom? Call them to response this morning. Give them the courage to take that step. God, in all these things, whether individually as a church, would you lead us well? In Jesus' name we pray.
ಹೇಳ್ತೀನಿ